Good morning. Welcome to South Bay Community Church, especially if you're joining us for the first time today. It's, it's great to have you here. We've been in this series called Outrageous Love, and so we're going to continue today. And I want to begin by asking the question, what is love? I, I thought, well, hey, that's a pretty important question to ask since we're doing a series on love. So what is love? What is love? Um, back in the 60s, a young lady named Kim Car Casali uh, drew some pictures uh, describing what love is, depicting what love is, and she gave it to her boyfriend. And somehow they caught on, and it became a, com a comic strip called Love Is. Now, you might have seen it. I think they still have them around today, although I never look at the comics anymore. But it, it kind of looked like this. Um, you remember, you remember this one? Love is, and then this one says, love is you and me, it's us. Oh, you know, so, and then here's another one. Love is that secret ingredient. Wow. And then third one, love is wanting you in my arms for the rest of my life. And I just thought, you know, people saw this and I thought, oh, oh, this is so cute. But then if you were not very romantic like me, I, I, I would look at these and think, that's pretty disgusting. That's like, that's... <laughs> That's pretty dumb. It really is dumb. Um, and and um, I, I think, I also think back to the 60s, or maybe it was the early 70s, I'm not sure, but there was a very popular movie that came out, and it was called Love Story. Of course, it was called Love Story. Anybody remember it? Starred, uh, starred Ryan O'Neill and Ally McGraw. And I couldn't believe it, but the movie actually was nominated for seven Academy Awards. Seven Academy Awards. And everyone says, you got to go see the movie. So I went to see the movie. And the movie was famous for one line. Remember what it was, Darla? Yeah, that's right. It's right there. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Love means never having to say you're sorry. And I remember so many people thought, wow. I mean, I think it was Allie McGraw that said it to Ryan O'Neill in the movie because she was dying of cancer. And she said to him, love means never having to say you're sorry in the and the place went gaga. I was like, wow. And, you know, not, you know, I just thought, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> like, seriously, like, take it from the love expert, right? I, have, I can't tell you the number of times I've had to apologize to my wife in the last 25 years. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I said this. I'm sorry I did this. I'm sorry I didn't call you. I'm sorry I did You know, like so many things, right? I mean, you got to say sorry. Love is not never having to say you're sorry. And these people just don't get it, right? So... So what is love? Right, what is love? And I think maybe you've asked that question yourself. Like, what is love? So we're going to understand, hopefully you'll understand what love is today. From the scriptures, I'm going to give you the definition that comes right out of the Bible. And so if you brought your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Bring your Bibles to church. And, and if you didn't, you can open up your Bay Watch. And inside of your Bay Watch, there's a sheet and all the verses are listed there for you. You can also download our South Bay Community Church app. Just go to the Play Store, the Google Store, whatever the store it is, and, and you can get the South Bay app. I understand almost nearly 800 people have downloaded the app already today, or by today. So uh, we're going to see what the scriptures have to say about, about love, what love is. But before we do that, I want to open up our time in a word of prayer. And I want to ask you to pray for, uh, for Robilyn uh, Sorrells. She comes to our church, would normally be here on a Sunday. Her mom and dad were here earlier, but she's been in the hospital for the last three weeks. I mean, just in a, in a real bad way with her health. And she desperately needs a liver transplant. So uh, we know kind of what that means, but let's just pray. If you wouldn't mind praying for, for Robilyn, that she would get a, 
a liver transplant. Um, I went to see her last Sunday and was not doing well. And this week, you know, she just made a huge rebound. But now she's on that list. We're thankful for that and, and, and pray for that. And uh, uh, Randy Shepard, who is, um, who is one of our elders here, he, he lost his brother a month ago. And then last, was it last night, the night before, he lost his sister. And so uh, we'll just keep, keep them in, in, in our prayers, if you don't mind. Okay, so we'll open up our time in a word of prayer. And then we'll get into the message. Uh, Father, um, first of all, God, it's just so good to be here today. Uh, I can't think of a better way to start the, the week than to coming and being with your people, to being in your presence, to worship you, and to hear from your word. And that's really what we want to hear today is we want to hear from your word. We want, we want to know what your word has to say uh, about love. And God, as we gather together today as a, as a church family, um, we think of those who have been hurting and, and we want to lift them up to you. God, we desperately cry out to you. We, we realize what, what, what all is involved in, in a transplant that Robin, Robin leads so desperately. And God, we ask by your sovereign design that you would provide her the liver that she needs and that she would have a successful transplant, a successful surgery. And, and God, we pray that you just continue to, to favor her with your, your blessings during this difficult time. And Father, be with Randy and Nan. Comfort them um, during this really difficult time. So thankful that his sister and brother both, both had a relationship with you at the end. And God, that just means, that's everything. God, that means so much. And I also want to lift up Marlon Braceros. Uh, I know her dad, who's coming to church here on Saturday nights, uh, just went home to be with you, and we're just so thankful, God, for his relationship with you that, that promises and guarantees eternal life to all those who believe. And God, today, I just again ask, God, we, I don't think anyone wants to hear from me, but we want to hear from you. We want to hear what your word has to say. We don't care what the world has and thinks about love. We, we want to know what you think about love. So speak to us today from your word. I pray that you'd help me to, to, to convey the truth of your word in a very clear way so that we get it, that we understand it. So speak to us now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, before we dive into the passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. I want to give you a little bit of background, okay? And it's important for you to understand background because when you understand the background uh, of, a, of a particular verse, for example, it'll make you say, wow, I didn't know that. Oh, that's why it says what it says. And, and that's what I hope you're going to get today when I explain to you the background of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, 2 Corinthians was an epistle or a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul around 55 A.D. He planted the church in Corinth, the church Corinthians, planted the church in Corinth around uh, three years earlier, around 52 A.D., now, when he wrote this, he wrote about, in 2 Corinthians 8, to the church at Corinth, he wrote about churches in Macedonia. Now, let me show you, and he also planted those churches in Macedonia. Let me show you a little bit of map, show this little map here. So here's kind of the Mediterranean Sea right in the middle. And, of course, on the very bottom right, you see Jerusalem. And that's kind of where everything emanated from. There's Jerusalem right there. And then if you look, if you go across the sea, you follow that little jaggedy line, you, you'll see Corinth right there. And this is in Greece. And he traveled all this way from Jerusalem to Corinth to plant the church uh, known as the Church of Corinth or Corinthians. And then if you go north up into Greece, there's a region right above that called Macedonia. And he also traveled up there to Macedonia 
to plant some churches there. The churches, two churches that he planted there, the church at Philippi, which is where we get the book Philippians, and the church at Thessalonica, and he wrote a letter to them called Thessalonians. So he traveled a long way. Now, from Jerusalem to Corinth is about 800 miles as the, as the crow flies. That's so a straight shot. It would be 800 miles. But, of course, if you took the long route, if you, had to, if you had to bike it or hoof it or drive there, it would be about 1,800 miles. So he had to go a long ways from Jerusalem to Corinth and then up into Macedonia to plant the churches. Now, when Paul wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 8, the churches in Macedonia were experiencing a severe hardship. They were going through some really hard times. And so he wrote to the church at Corinth to tell them about how the people in Macedonia were coping with their hard times. And when he gives us this information, he, he gives us a definition of love. So take, if you take a look at 2 Corinthians 8, just, just the first two verses, you'll notice in, in verse 2, says that they were experiencing a severe test of affliction. You want to circle or underline that. They were experiencing a severe test of affliction. And then they were, and it says here that they were experiencing extreme poverty. So you can, in the very next line, you can circle or underline extreme poverty. Now, the, uh, ex- the severe test of affliction that they were experiencing, the, first of all, the word affliction is the Greek word philipsis. So the, the letter that he wrote to them was written in the Greek. And so we look at the Greek to see what some of these words actually mean. The word affliction is the word thalipsis, and it means pressure or harassment. In fact, thalipsis was the kind of pressure that left you with the feeling that there was no way of escape, that there was no way out. So this was really intense pressure. And then you have the words extreme poverty, which gives you a sense of the nature of the thalipsis that they were experiencing. And that is that they were experiencing extreme poverty. And the reason why they were impoverished was because a huge famine hit the land. The land was covered by this, this incredible famine that hit the land. And so extreme poverty in the Greek can be translated rock bottom poverty. They were experiencing rock bottom poverty because of this famine. They didn't have any food to eat. Fritz Reinecker wrote a, a book that I use quite often. It's called The Linguistic Key to the Greek New Testament. In his book, he wrote that the Macedonians faced what he described as an abject poverty in which the people were in danger of starvation. In other words, the poverty, the affliction that they experienced was so bad that the people were on the verge of starving to death. It was that bad. That was their affliction. They were dirt poor. This was like the Great Depression. Now, now let me read the passage. That's the background. Let me read you the passage, and it gives you a sense, well, it'll, and, and this will tell us what love is. So let me take it from the top, starting in verse 1. Here's what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. He wrote, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. All right, the churches of Macedonia, that's the topic of his letter. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. And I say this not as a command, 
but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. All right, so to help you grasp what's going on here, I want to direct your attention to the very last verse, verse 8, where it says, your love also is genuine. Would you underline that? Your love also is genuine. Paul ended the passage by referring to a genuine love because that's, that's summed up what the Macedonian believers were all about. They were about a genuine love. They exemplified a genuine love. This passage is all about a genuine love. This gives us a definition of genuine love. So what is love? Well, it begins with grace. So let me direct your attention to the top of the passage, verse 1. It says here, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So circle or underline grace of God. You see, the Macedonians experienced the grace of God when Paul came to them and proclaimed the gospel of God to them or the gospel of Jesus to them, which was astounding, really astounding in and of itself simply because the Macedonians were Gentiles and Paul was a Jew and the two were never to meet. But we know that Paul, after preaching the, the Jews who rejected the gospel, was commanded to go and preach to the Gentiles. And so he went and preached to the Gentiles in Macedonia, and they were, he preached to them the message of grace, the, the gospel of grace, that God loved them, that Jesus died for them, that, G, that God chose them, that even though the Gentiles were, were, um, were Gentiles, he chose them to be the children of God. He chose them to be part of his family. And that was amazing grace that he did that at all. I don't know if you're familiar with this little bit of Americana, but between 1854 and 1929, 150,000, more than 150,000 abandoned, uh, abandoned and orphaned children in, on the eastern seaboard of the United States were put on trains and they were sent west in search of new homes. It was called, the trains were called the orphan trains. And here's, here's an actual photo of an orphan train with all the orphans. And so they would load up these trains during this period between 1859 and, and 1929. They would load up these trains with all these orphans and they would send them back west in the hopes that they would find homes. One of the passengers on one of the trains during this period was a young boy named Lee whose mother died when he was seven years old. It's a true story. After his mother died, Lee and his siblings were placed in an orphanage because the father was not able to care for them, couldn't take care of them. And then two years after being in an orphanage, Lee and his brothers found themselves on one of these trains, an orphan train, and this is Lee right here. Um, he found them, they found themselves on a train in search of a new home. Lee was nine his brother Leo was six, and his youngest brother uh, uh, Gerald was three years old. When the train reached a small town in Texas, all the children got off the train, and they were ushered into this church. And all the children were lined up there in the church. And then these couples would come, and they would choose which children they wanted to adopt and have in their own family. Well, the children lined up, and Gerald, who was three, was immediately chosen by a middle-aged couple. They chose him. And then after the paperwork was complete, they began walking out the front door with Gerald, and, and Gerald screamed for his brothers, and Lee wanted to run after Gerald, but he knew that it wouldn't do any good. And a, a hurt and a bitterness and an anger just began to well up inside of his heart. And then something good happened. An older couple, an elderly couple, said, we want these two, pointing to, to Leo and Lee, we want these two, and they did the paperwork, and off they went. 
But then two weeks later, the couple decided that they couldn't keep Lee, that they, couldn't, they didn't have the money. And so they said, well, Lee, you're going to have to leave. And so his bruised, Lee said his bruised heart seemed to want to stop a beating. And then he went to another home and then another, and nobody wanted him. And then, so here's poor Lee. You know, he lost his mom, lost touch with his dad, separated from his brothers. Nobody wanted him. He was nine years old, just nine years old. And he was devastated. Well, finally, finally, Lee was taken in by who he described as a tall man and a plump woman. And their names were Ben and Ollie Nailing. He said the first night in their new home, he said he determined that he was going to run away the next morning. And so after waking up the next morning, gathered, they gathered for breakfast. And he reached over to grab a biscuit. And then Lee, here's how he described what happened next. I'll put it up here for you. He said, Mrs. Nailing stopped me. Not until we've said grace, she explained, and I watched as they bowed their heads. Mrs. Nailing began speaking softly to our father, thanking him for the food and for the beautiful day. I knew enough about God to know that the woman's our father was the same one who was in our father who art in heaven prayer that visiting preachers had recited over us at the orphanage. But I couldn't understand why she was talking to him as though he was sitting uh, here with us waiting for his share of the biscuits. And so I began to squirm in my chair. And then Mrs. Nailing thanked God for the privilege of raising a son. And I stared as she began to smile. She was calling me a privilege. And Mr. Nailing must have agreed with her because he was beginning to smile too. And for the first time since I boarded the train, I began to relax. A strange, warm feeling began to fill my aloneness. And I looked at the empty chair next to me. Maybe in some mysterious way, our father was seated there and was listening to the next softly spoken words. Help us to make the right choices as we guide him and help us help him make the right choices too. Dig in, son. The man's voice startled me. I hadn't even noticed the amen, and my mind had stopped at the choices part. As I heaped my plate, I thought about that. Hate and anger and running away had seemed to be only choices, but maybe there were others. And that this Mr. Nunning didn't seem so bad, and this thing about having our father to talk to shook me up a little, and I ate in silence. After breakfast, they walked me to the barber shop for a haircut, and we stopped at each of the six houses on the way, and each time the nailings introduced me as our new son. And as we left the last house, I knew that at first light the next day, I would not be running away. There was a hominess here that I'd never known. At least I could choose to give it a try. And then was something else. Although I didn't know where Papa was or how I could write to him, I had the strong feeling that I found not one but two new fathers and I could talk to both of them and that's the way it turned out it was just something about Lee right there was just something about Lee that the nailings just absolutely loved even though he was broken even though he was angry angry even though he was bitter they wanted him to be their son even though he lost much of his boyhood innocence because of all that he went through they wanted him to be part of their family. And that's grace. That's grace. And that's what the Macedonians experienced. They experienced the grace of God. They were a bunch of Gentiles, but God chose them, wanted them to be part of his family. He wanted them to be his children. Even though they were sinners, even though they were far away from God, God chose them. He wanted them. And that was grace. God wanted the same thing for us. 
He wanted to give us his grace because he wants you to be part of his family. He wants you to be one of his children. You know, I don't use the New Living Translation paraphrase very often, but I like the NLT version of Ephesians 1, 4 through 8 because of the way it conveys the nature of God's amazing grace in kind of everyday language. Let me read it to you. Ephesians 1, 4 through 7. Paul wrote, even, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. Imagine that, without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear uh, son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. I just love that everyday language talk that describes God's amazing grace. God gave us his grace. God wanted us to be part of his family. And, and, and that's what he gave to the Macedonians. He gave, him, he gave them the, his grace. He wanted them to be part of his family. And it changed their insides. It changed their heart. Grace ignited love inside of their hearts. And this is where love begins. Love begins with grace. The Apostle John said something very similar. He put it a little bit differently, but the same idea. 1 John 4.19, the Apostle John wrote, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. We love because God did a work in our own hearts. We love because he showed us his grace. You see, God's grace, God's love ignites our own love. You see, the upshot of this is that love isn't just an action. You've probably heard that love is an action, love is a verb. And there's some truth to that. That's partly true that love is an action, but that's not completely true that love is an action. I mean, you can do good deeds all day long, but that's not love necessarily. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. I'll put it up here for you. He, he said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, you can do all these things. You can do good deeds all day long, but it's not necessarily love. You can do it out of obligation. You can do it for whatever reason you do it. You can do it because everybody else does it. But if you have not love, you're nothing. And so it's not true necessarily that love is just an action. Love begins with the work of God in your own heart. Love begins when God ex extends his amazing grace to you. So write this one down. Genuine love begins with God's grace. It begins with God's grace in your own heart. You know, many years ago when I was a young believer, uh, I don't think I've ever shared this with you, but I would drive occasionally from L.A. where I lived. I, I would drive occasionally to Fullerton to attend a church out there, the E.V. Free Church of Fullerton, where Chuck Swindoll was the pastor. And he's always been one of my favorite preachers. Uh, and I would go out there to, to listen to him preach. And today he's 83 years old and he's still preaching in Frisco, Texas. I don't know that I'll be preaching after I'm 80 years old. But... Uh, Something he said once really struck a chord with me, and I want to put it up here for you. He, he said this, Chuck Swindoll said, I cannot even imagine where I would be today were it not for that handful of friends who have given me a heart full of joy. I, I don't know where I'd be today if it weren't for a handful of friends who have given me a heart of joy. Let's face it, friends make life a lot more fun. 
I mean, is that true? I mean, where would we be? I, I think about that, and I think, where would I be without my friends? Where would I be without my friends? I love my wife, and I need my wife, but I also need to have friends. I th- I'm so thankful for the friends that God has given me. I'm thankful for, for my old friends. This, this is uh, Dennis and, em- and Emily Lowe on the left, and Duke and Ginger Runnels on the right. I, we became friends at Pepperdine decades ago. And it was Dennis in the worn shirt uh, who, who led me to Jesus and told me about Jesus and baptized me. And, and, and recently we had the opportunity to reconnect and uh, to rekindle our friendship. And I just, when I got together with them recently, you could see that we're here in the church lobby because they came to visit here not too long ago. Um, it was such a warm feeling uh, to be reminded of all the way that they impacted me, the way that they've loved on me. And there's something about that. When you know that you're loved, when you know that you're liked, it, it just fills your heart with joy, doesn't it? I think about some of my new friends, my, my new young friend, Brendan Lee, who I see sitting here today. Uh, every time, uh, I don't think uh, mom and Brendan knew that I was going to m- mention him, but, but every time I see Brendan in, in the lobby, He'll come running up to me and he'll give, it, give me at least 20 hugs and he'll tell me that I am his best friend. And uh, love you, guy. And um, I'm thankful for the friends and the guys that I get to work with, like Dave Romero and James O. To you, they are two of our pastors, but to me, they are my friends and they're just a bunch of goofballs and the force is strong with them. It's fun to be able to just mess around. It's such a, a sweet thing. And, and there's so many others. There's so many others in this ch- church. Usually, they say that pastors don't have many friends. And that's true. I think that's really true that pastors don't have friends. Because uh, my pastor told me, he says, if you go in the ministry, you won't have many friends because everyone will always think of you as their pastor. That's why I love it when Brendan doesn't call me Pastor Gary, he calls me Uncle Gary. I love that more than I love it when he calls me Pastor. But uh, people look at you as a pastor, and, and so you, you think that you don't, may not have friends. And so, but God has blessed me with so many friends, so many in this church, and I can, I can name just many of you who become very dear to me. And what happens when, again, what happens when you know that you are loved? What happens when you know that someone likes you? It just fills your heart with joy, doesn't it? It fills your heart with joy. It fills my heart with joy to have friends. And that's probably how Lee Nailing felt when he found out that he was wanted by this family, that he was loved by this family, that they were calling him his son. It just filled his heart with joy. And that's exactly what happened to the Macedonians after they received God's love and learned that God loved them, that God loved them, that he gave his grace to them. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, verse 2 says that they had an abundance of joy. Notice that they had an abundance of joy. Epiresusen is the Greek word, and it means surplus or above and beyond, to overflow. In other words, they had a joy that, was, that had no bounds. They had a joy that was over the top. In spite of the fact that they were starving to death, they had all this joy. They had a joy that exceeded the distress that they were experiencing in their own lives. You see, you can have joy even when your circumstances are horrible because your joy is not rooted in your circumstances. Your joy is rooted in the knowledge of God's grace. I mean, who, who's going to be joyful about finding out that you're sick or you have cancer? Who's going to be joyful about the fact that maybe your spouse has decided to leave you? Or who's going to be joyful about the fact that your kids have run away 
or they're struggling with drugs. Who's going to be joyful about the fact that you're having financial problems? There's no joy in that. But we find our joy in the knowledge that God loves us. And therefore, even if you're going through experiencing a severe test of affliction this very day, extreme poverty, even if you're homeless, you can experience joy, joy that comes from knowing that God loves you. So will you write this one down? God's grace leads to joy. Love begins with grace, and then that grace leads to true joy. And then if you look at verse 2 again, it says that joy leads to, to the wealth of generosity. You can write that one down. True joy leads to generosity. And here's what generosity looked like for the Macedonians, starting in verse 3. It says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Now, let me tell you what's going on here. Right? The same famine that affected Macedonia up in the north in Greece afflicted Jerusalem 800 miles down in the south. They, the same famine. And hence, the Hebrew Christians in Jerusalem were suffering. They were in great distress just as the, as the Christians in Macedonia were. They too, in Jerusalem, were experiencing this extreme poverty, this severe test of affliction. And so somehow, Paul got word he got word to the Gentile believers in Macedonia to let them know about the plight of their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. They probably didn't even have a personal relationship with each other. They didn't even know each other. But he wanted them to know what their brothers and sisters in Christ were experiencing in Jerusalem. And here's what they did when they heard of their plight. Verse 3, it says, first, they gave according to their means. They gave according to their means. You know, when you give according to your means, you, you, it means you give according to what you have. Right? So if you have a lot, then you give based on what you have. And if you have very little, then you, you just don't have to give as much. You give a little. That's what it means to give according to your means. And, and giving according to your means is, is a good way to figure out how you're going to give uh, to someone or something, you know, when you give something away. They gave according to their means. Now, in the last 25 years, I can't tell you the number of times someone has come up to me and said, Pastor Gary, if I win that $500 million lotto, I will buy you and Cheryl a house. I can't tell you the number, you know, good-hearted people, right, who have, maybe some of you are here today when you told me that. Good-hearted people in our church, like, oh, we, we, we just love you, we care about you, so if, if I win that $500 million lotto, I'm going to buy you and Cheryl a house. And you know what I say to them? You know, don't waste your money playing the lotto. Really, don't waste your money playing the lotto. But if you do and you win, here's my number. <laughs> but if someone did buy me a house because they won the $500 million lotto, they would be giving me something according to their means. They're now multimillionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And they're giving me a, a $1 million house or a $500,000 house according to their means, right? And that's a good thing, all right? That, you know, you give according to your means, but... You know what the problem is today? A lot of people don't even give according to their means. You know, you see this. A lot of people don't give according to their means because they don't want to part with what they have. They don't want to part with what they have. And statistics show that the more you have, the less you want to give. Right? The more you have, the less you want to give. And it's, and it's true even in the church. Not our church, but it's true even in the church. According to Share Faith, Share Faith magazine, Share Faith Magazine found that believers who make, this is crazy, believers who make less than $20,000 
are eight times more likely to give to the support of their ministry and their church, eight times more likely than someone who makes $75,000 or more. In other words, the more you make, the less you're willing to support your own church. And the less you make, $20,000, you're more likely to give to support your ministry. That's amazing. And then they came up with this chart right here. Share Faith came up with this chart which shows that there might be 100 million Christians in that middle line there. 100 million Christians, 100 million Americans say they go to church, yet only 1.5 million of them tithe. 1.5 million of them tithe. If you break that down, extrapolate those numbers, basically what it's saying is that only about 5% of all Christ followers nationwide, 5% of them will actually tithe their income. And now tithe is, a, is basically the Old Testament principle of giving 10% uh, of your income to the Lord, 10%, right? But um, based on this chart, 5% Christ followers ever tithe their income, uh, even though the Old Testament says to do so. 80%, statistics show that 80% of Christ followers give on average of only 2.5% of their income to the Lord. Only 2.5%. 80% of Christ followers do that. For example, that means if someone made $10,000, they would typically give $250 for that entire year, which is 2.5%. If they made $50,000, they would typically give $1,250, which is about 2.5%. And I would say that's hardly giving according to your means. Sadly, most Christians don't even give according to their means. But you know what the Macedonians did? You know what they did? They gave above and beyond their means. They gave beyond their means. Take a look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, they certainly did that, and beyond their means. They gave beyond their means, underline that, which means they gave even when they didn't have anything to give. That's what it means. They gave even when they didn't have anything to give. I can't even begin to wrap my head around what that must have been like. I mean, here they are. They are starving to death. They probably don't have any food. They don't have anything, any, anything to eat. They have, they're starving. And here are these Jewish Christians and their brothers and sisters more than 800 miles away. And they hear about their plight. And they said, man, we've got to help them out. And they had nothing to give. And they, they didn't even have, they couldn't give out of their means because they had nothing. They had no means. And as, as I thought about what this must have looked like, the only thing I could think of was a story that I heard about um, years ago about a guy named Ernest Shackleton. Sir Ernest Shackleton, he led multiple expeditions down to Antarctica to the South Pole. And in 1908, he led an expedition down to, to the South Pole. And then disaster struck when his ship called the Endurance struck ice and it became trapped in an ice pack. This is the actual photo of the Endurance. Trapped in an ice pack and it crushed the ship. And this is Sir um, Ernest Shackleton here. And so they all had to abandon ship and they escaped by camping out on a, on a sea of ice. And then they became stranded. And then they started running out of food. And finally it got down to their, they got down to their last ration of hardtack. This is hardtack right here. This is, it's kind of like a dry hard biscuit. Each man was given one last hardtack. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. Here's one for you. One for you. One for you. And that's it. That's all they had left to eat. And you could do with your one last hardtack whatever you wanted. And some were so hungry they ate it right away. Others of, it, of them put it in their food sack and they just guarded it with their dear life like in this how long it like, you know, just nibble it whenever they're getting hungry, you know, just to kind of ease the hunger pangs. 
And they, they just held on. In his diary, Shackleton described what happened one evening. He said the fire was built. The men were weary and exhausted. They all climbed in their sleeping bags. And he said just as they were all, just as he was about to fall asleep, Shackleton noticed, he said, out of the corner of his eye, he noticed one of his most trusted men sit up in his sleeping bag. And he began to look around to see if anyone was awake. And then he said he, it broke his heart when he saw the man reach over, over for the food sack that belonged to the man that was sleeping next to him, reached over and grabbed his food sack. And he knew what he was going to do. And he grabbed his food sack, opened it up, and rather than take that other man's hardtack, he got his hardtack and put it in his sack, closed it up, and put it back. That's giving beyond your means. That's what the Macedonians did. They gave sacrificially. They gave out of their poverty. They gave when they had nothing to give. That's outrageous love. You know, there's a big difference between giving out of your means or according to means and giving beyond your means. And do you think there's a difference? Do you think God notices the difference? Yeah, you bet he does. God notices the difference. There's a difference. And God appreciates, I think God truly values sacrifice over ease because that's what he did. That's what God did. He sacrificed. He gave above and beyond. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Will you underline in verse 2, gave himself up for us. And circle the word sacrifice. Christ gave himself up for us. He went above and beyond. He made a sacrifice. He sacrificed his own son who died on a cross for our sins. And then what does verse 1 say? Be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, do what God did. Right? We're to do what God did. We are to give sacrificially. We're to give above and beyond our means, not simply according to our means, but above and beyond. We should be sacrificial. And the generosity of the Macedonian believers was characterized by sacrifice. That's what they did. They sacrificed. And you can write that one down. Generosity is sacrificial. Now let me just add something here. You, you all are the most giving people, the most sacrificial people I've ever met my entire life. And you're the kind of folks who if somebody who was homeless came up to you and said to you, could you spare some change? You would probably pull out all the change in your pocket, go to your wallet, pull out some $20 bills and hand it over. But you know what I want to tell you? Sometimes that's not necessarily the most loving thing to do. Right? So I would just say to you, be wise. Always be wise about what you give because you don't want to simply enable someone to, to go out and get a drink or to get drugs. What I will often say to somebody is, are you hungry? And when they say yes, I'll say, let me get you something to eat. And if it's, you know, if, if I can do this, if, if I, I might say, you know, just for safety's sake, you wait here. 
I'm going to go over there and get something for you. You wait here, and I will be right back. I promise I will be right back. Or if I'm near a restaurant, I'll say, come on in with me. And I, I've had guys say, but I'm dirty. I says, I don't care. You come in with me. You come in with me. You tell me what you want. I'll get whatever you want, and I will provide them a meal for them. Sometimes that's the wiser thing to do. So, so be, be cautious, you know, because I don't want you to think, okay, we've got to be outrageous love, you know. The, the, the pastors are telling us we just got to love and we just got to give. That's not necessarily true. Be, be wise about how you give. There ought to be limits. You know, we need to be wise about that. So just a little side note on that. But here are a couple of things worth noting about what the Macedonians did. Number one, no one forced them to give. Notice that in, in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it says they gave of their own accord. They gave willingly. They, they gave freely. No one forced them to do it. And, and no one should ever force you to do something you don't want to do. Right? If you give, you give because you want to give, because your heart tells you to give, not because you feel like, well, if everyone else is giving, I've got to give too. No, no, no. Don't do that. Second, verse 4 says they, they wanted to give. They wanted to give. In fact, take a look at this. It says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They begged Paul to give. Paul, let us give. Now, I don't know why they had to beg Paul to, to give. Maybe Paul said to them, hey, look, you know, I, I just wanted you to know what, what your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are going through. The same famine that you guys are experiencing, they're experiencing the same thing. And they're starving there too. And so, but, but I just, I'm just telling you that because, man, I know you guys are going through a hard time. I know that things are tough here for you too. I know you guys are, are starving here too. So, hey, if, if anything, would you just at least pray for them? Will you just pray for them? And they said, no, we want to do something. Please let us help. We beg you, let us give. That's, that was their response. And it tells you a lot about their heart. It was amazing. They had to beg. They begged Paul to let them give. Let me, let me ask you something. When was the last time you begged someone to let you give, to let you help somebody? When was the last time you did that? If I said to you today, hey, church, I, I know that these are hard times that we're living in. And I, I know some of you are just really struggling. We're here at the beginning of the year, and this is tax season, and you're still paying bills from, from Christmas. So, hey, you know what? I mean, hey, when the offering basket passes, just let it go. Don't, don't put anything in it because I know you're having a hard time. In fact, better yet, you know what? We'll, we'll, we just won't, ushers, we just won't take an offering today because, because everyone's having a hard time, and we'll just let the basket, you know, we won't even, we won't take an offering today. We'll just do it that way. And, Maybe there might be somebody in here who will say, wow, I love our church. They don't take an offering. That's so, that's so good, right? You know what the Macedonians would say? No, we, we beg you, please. We want to give. We want to help. We got to do something. Completely different response. And that's what they did. They begged. They begged. And then verse 6 says that they urged Titus who started the collection, they, they urged him to finish it. Hey, I just keep taking the collection, Titus. And then it says the very end of verse 6, he said they, they, called it an, they called the collection an act of grace. They called it an act of grace. It was an act of grace that, all, that, that was really ignited their love in the first place when Paul proclaimed the gospel to them. It was an act of grace that the Macedonians wanted to, to give and it was an act of grace that God gave them the wherewithal to give. All of that was an act of grace. And that's why in verse 7, Paul said, I want you to keep on excelling in this act of grace. Keep on doing it. And then in verse 8, 
verse 8, Paul said, this is genuine love. All these things I've described that your Macedonian brothers and sisters are doing, this is love. This is love. This is the definition. And so let me summarize it for you. It begins with grace. begins with God's grace, with the work of God's grace in our hearts. And then God's grace leads to true joy because when God has done a work in your heart, when you realize that you are loved, when, you're, when you realize your sins are forgiven, when you realize that God wants you to be part of his family, man, that just leads to true joy. And then true joy leads to sacrificial generosity. Like, wow, God has done all this for me. I have this joy. Man, I want to, I want to do something for others. And all of this equals genuine love. It's genuine love. This is, this is love. Right? Genuine love flows out of God's love that gives you joy, that compels you to give sacrificially to others. You know, when I think of genuine love, I've never been in a church. Honestly, I've never been in a church that is more loving than this. But when I think of genuine love, I think of certain individuals in our church. There's many, but I, I just picked a few. I think of Pat Fugino in our church. Pat is 77 years old. Pat's always doing something, always serving. Here he is, carrying chairs. I don't know where he's carrying chairs to, but he's, he's always serving. But nearly every week, I know Pat was here last night. He was probably here today because if he comes to church, he'll, he'll, he keeps coming. He'll come to all the services just to serve. But almost nearly every week, once a week, he'll show up in the middle of the week to, to take out the trash because you all generate so much garbage around here. <laughs> Seriously, you do. And he'll come and he'll take out all the trash. It's all in these plastic bags. And sometimes we have this one bin, right? And the, the trash company, sometimes that bin will float overflowing. The trash company told us if the plastic lids are not on top, not closing the bins completely, if it's kind of sticking up because there's all this trash in there, then we will not pick up the trash. So your plastic, your lids have got to be completely closed. And so sometimes they'll be popped up. And you know what he does? We caught him. You know what we caught him doing? Shame on him. He gets inside the trash bins. He gets inside the trash bins. 77-year-old guy, and he's stomping on the trash. Right? And the plastic bags are busting open. The juice is spilling out, spraying all over his pants. Your stuff is your junk. Right? He's, that is genuine love. And we told Pat, Pat, you're 77 years old, man. You can't be doing that. We don't want you to get up there because it's dangerous, right? But that won't stop him. On the other end of the age spectrum, I think of, when I think of genuine love, I think of Jordan Banez, who was on our Texas team. As soon as he, we arrived home from Texas, this 21-year-old kid says, I got to do more. And we just had the fires in Santa Rosa and Sonoma County. And so he says, I'm going up there to help. See what I can do to help. And so we all prayed for him here at church. Our Texas team prayed for him. And he says, I hope my car makes it. And I go, what do you mean? You hope your car makes it? Like, what's wrong with your car? He says, well, I got these car issues. Like, oh, no. So we, we were all worried about him. And we prayed for him. And we prayed for his car that he would make it up there. And we asked him every, every hour, you you text us and let us know how you're doing, whether you make it or not. And then on his return home, he had to drive all night because he, he was working all day. And then he, um, he, he got done around, I think, around 9 o'clock. And so he says, okay, I'm driving home now. You're driving home now? You're going to have to drive all night long to get home? Six-hour drive from the Bay Area? 
And so our, our Texas team members here at the church, they were, we were so, so worried about him. So we decided to call him all night long. All night long, our Texas team members took turn. Into the wee hours of the morning, we were calling him so that he would have company on his drive home. And the next morning, he says, I made it home safely. Thanks for the company. And they just, we just called to talk to him at 2 o'clock in the morning and make sure, hey, so tell me, how's your trip? And just, just to keep him awake, just to keep him so that he didn't fall asleep while he was driving. That's genuine love. Not just on Jordan's part, but on our team's part. When I think of genuine love, I think of Greg Higa, who spearheads our Heaven's ki- Kitchen ministry. He was all mad at me this morning after the first service for mentioning his name, but it's too bad. Um, not only does he help with that ministry, spearhead that ministry, but he, there's, a, there's a man here in our church who's, who's homeless, comes to our church, and he, he helps him out. Recently, he was driving him around, helping him to fill out all the paperwork so he could get general relief. And then right after Christmas, he, he heads down every year, he heads down to help to Mexico to help build homes down in Mexico for those who don't have homes, and that's what he's doing here. I think of genuine love. I think of Darnell Dean, who serves in the L.A. Mission every week. He was on our Texas team, and now he's retired. Um, but now that we're entering tax season, he will do taxes for people who can't afford to hire H&R Block to do their taxes for them. I got my appointment with him this week. <laughs> but how wonderful, right? How wonderful that here's a man and he knows how to do taxes. I have no clue how to do my taxes, right? I, I go to an accountant, but I don't go to Darnell. But Darnell will help those who, 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 who um, can't afford to get it done otherwise. When I think of genuine love, I think of Art Jacon and Maribel Torres, who rushed off to the hospital a couple of months ago when... When they got word, they got a text from Regina saying that she was hit by a car while she's bicycling up in the PV area. And they got a, they're sitting in our, we're sitting in the prayer room having a prayer time. And, and he says, I just got a text. Regina just hit by a car. She's hit by a car. We got to pray for her. We got to pray for her. And so everyone said, okay, let's pray for her. When they bowed their heads, when they looked up, they were gone. Mary Bell and, and um, Art were gone. They took off to the hospital during the prayer. And later on, Art told me, he says, you remember Mary, he said, remember uh, Regina said that she didn't have any family in the area? So that's why we had to rush to the hospital because we're her family. We're her family. Even though they just met a couple months earlier in the prayer, in the prayer, in the prayer meeting. That's genuine love. And I see it in our church all the time, every day, among so many of you. That's why I love this church. So, What's love? It's sacrificial generosity that flows out of, heart, out of a heart of joy because of what God has done in your life. That's, that's love. So I want to ask you a question as I close. What kind of a lover are you? What kind of a lover are you? I mean, when you see a need, when you see a hurt, do you just turn a blind eye to it because your heart is hard? Maybe you're just not a very loving, a very compassionate person. You're not a very caring person. I would, I would, if that's you, if that describes you, I would be surprised if there's anybody like that in our church. But if that describes you, then I would challenge you to ask God to do a work in your own heart. Say to him, God, my heart 
is not as warm as it needs to be. Will you do a work in my heart? Will you, will you just show me how much you love me? Will you, will you just do something in me so that I can love others? And then if your love is just kind of mediocre, like, you know, I'm okay, but you barely give out of your own means, then ask God to do a work in your heart that he would take you from there to being a sacrificial lover, a generously sacrificial lover who's willing to go above and beyond to love others. Ask God to do that. And if we all get to that place where we love the way the Macedonians did, I believe we will change the world. I really do. We will change the world. Well, let's close our time in a word of prayer. Father, so many things, uh, so many things crossed my mind as, as I was sharing this message today. Just the gratitude, the gratefulness, God, for, for your grace in my own life. Thank you, God, for what you've done in my own life. And thank you, God, for what you've done in, in the lives of all these people. God, you sacrificed your own son for us. You told us that you wanted us to be your children. You told us that you wanted to be, us to be part of your family. And that is truly amazing grace because, God, as you know, I am the, the least deserving to be your child. God, thank you for your amazing grace. And it fills our hearts with joy. Just as it fills our hearts with joy to know that somebody likes us or that somebody loves us or that somebody wants to be our friend. God, I just pray that you would stir in, in each of our hearts that no one would leave here today without knowing your amazing grace, without knowing that you want them to have a relationship with you. And God, I pray that you would stir in our hearts in such a way that we wouldn't be people who simply give out of our means or according to our means but I pray that you would stir in our hearts in such a way that every one of us, start with me, God, that I'd be willing, that we would be willing to love sacrificially, to be generously sacrificial, to go above and beyond because that's what you did. And Father, as we do that, not just as a church, not just in our small groups, but individually give us wisdom on how to do that. I pray that the love that comes from this church, this genuine love, will sweep across the South Bay like a tidal wave and have a ripple effect on the world. Use us to that end, God. May we be like the Macedonians. May we care and love for people all around the world help us to do something about it because you loved us first so thank you father we love you and we pray these things in jesus name amen, amen.